Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And this week we're talking about a highly requested topic on bisexuality and more specifically bisexual erasure. Yeah, we've talked about plenty of sexual orientation and sexuality issues on the podcast, but we have gotten a lot of letters just kindly reminding us. Hey guys, you know, you talk a lot about gay men or lesbians or trans people and trans issues, but where is the discussion of bisexuality? Kristen and I did do an episode on bisexual men, mainly the fact that they exist a couple years ago. And it was definitely time after hearing from you guys to revisit this topic. And we've also heard from Stuff Mom Never Told You listeners about this when we have talked about same-sex marriage in the past and specifically requesting that we refer to it as same-sex marriage rather than gay marriage because firsthand from some listeners saying, you know what, gay marriage doesn't exactly uh, encompass my experience as a bisexual woman who is married to another woman or who wants to be married to another woman. So there are there are different ways that this kind of bisexual erasure can exist simply in the way that we talk about even issues of equality. Yeah, and a big part of this conversation, whether it's about bisexuality in general or the issue of bisexual erasure, is sort of the discussion of stereotypes and the things that we assume about bisexual people and how we can tend to dismiss them. For instance, when Kristen and I did that episode on the fact that, yes, bisexual men exist, I remember distinctly getting a letter from a self-described gay man who said, oh, well, this is actually a really interesting and enlightening episode for me because I literally assumed that any man who called himself bi was just lying, that he was on the way to being gay. Yeah, the whole gay, straight, or lying is a pretty common stereotype, and especially when it comes to men in particular, because this whole conversation about bisexuality and bisexual erasure definitely has a gendered element to it, where it seems easier for us to accept uh, that women are capable of bisexuality, but but men, for some reason, are harder for us to wrap around. And we've talked about this before as well in the podcast in terms of women's sexuality being considered more fluid, whereas men's tend to be more rigid. And we'll talk more about the scientific studies that foster those kinds of assumptions. But, I mean, really, at the end of the day, uh It becomes clearer and clearer the more research that comes out and the more finely tuned that research is of just how much sexuality is a spectrum. Yeah, exactly. And issues of how that spectrum is that good because it includes bisexual people or is that negative for bisexuals because it erases them and replaces them with the idea of sexual fluidity? This is all stuff we're going to talk about uh, in these next two episodes. 
And we're also, of course, going to talk a lot about media representation. This isn't just like, where are the bisexuals in Kristen and Caroline's conversations? This is a bigger conversation, including the issue of representation on screen, in media, in articles, in studies, and all of this stuff, and how a lot of people out there, a lot of critics and media watchers out there are saying, yeah, we are getting more and better bisexual characters, uh, LGBT characters in general, but also bisexual characters. But it definitely hasn't always been that way. Now, this stands in marked contrast to our conversation not long ago about the rise of transgender characters on television and how 2014 was hailed as this watershed year for trans characters really coming to life in a more uh, well-rounded and holistic kind of way <laughs> with with limited still examples. But for bisexuals in the media, and I'm talking about bisexuals IRL and also on screen, 2014, at least according to The Advocate, was not such a great year. In, in fact, they called it the year of bisexual erasure. Yeah, and to kick off their article, The Advocate points to, specifically, Benoit Denizé Lewis's article in New York Times magazine called The Scientific Quest to Prove Bisexuality Exists, in which he talks about not only the scientific and academic research that's going on into bisexuality, but also the stereotypes uh, and assumptions that still exist. For instance, he lays out the assumption that, quote, in the eyes of many Americans, bisexuality, despite occasional and exaggerated media reports of its chicness, remains a bewildering and potentially invented orientation favored by men in denial about their homosexuality and by women who will inevitably settle down with men. Now, when I read that New York Times Magazine article, I didn't think on its on its face that it was negative. I didn't think it was negative about bisexual people or the bisexual community. But many critics uh, pointed to the article and said, this only focuses on bisexual men, not enough about bisexual women, but also points to the fact that Dennis A. Lewis focused a lot on the scientific aspect, which, by the way, was in the headline, but the scientific aspect of studying whether bisexuality exists at all. And so many people are saying, hey, we are so past this point. We are so past this point of proving whether bisexuality or pansexuality or sexual fluidity exists. We know it does because we're living it. And so there was a lot of criticism there that the writer, the New York Times Magazine writer, focused too much on that and not enough about maybe the cultural issues. But I will say this, uh, sitting in my chair in the, the journalism school auditorium, that the headline says it all. It's a scientific quest to prove bisexuality yeah. exists. And Dennis A. Lewis spends a lot of the time in the piece hanging out with the founders of the American Institute of Bisexuality and really focusing on their more political and cultural um, quest to mainstream bisexuality and to dismantle biphobia and bisexual erasure, while at the same time doing exactly what he was probably assigned in terms of actually looking at the scientific studies. Because I don't think that we can 
talk about one without the other. Now, mm-hmm. that might be a very heteronormative thing for uh, me to say, but I, I, like you, I didn't read it as a biphobic or bi-ignorant piece. And the fact of the matter is, like, I, I don't think that Dennis A. Lewis, by focusing on male sexuality, is a bad reporter, but rather it says a lot about our science and about like how those studies are being conducted and our assumptions about female sexuality. And it also too, like the conclusion of those most recent studies that he reports on is that, oh yeah, look at this fluidity of male sexuality that Mm -hmm. that we didn't realize before. But absolutely there is this um, problematic conflating of sexual, physiological sexual arousal with sexual orientation, which as, uh, you know, people like Anna Paquin have had to point out, those aren't necessarily (laughs) the same Things your sexual orientation isn't necessarily the last person you slept with, right? Yeah, and and Mark Joseph Stern, writing for Slate uh, in his article, "Is bisexual identity a useful fiction?" kind of points this out, and he says that several of Dennis A. Lewis's interview subjects paint bisexuality as something you do. In other words, they focused on the sexual or arousal aspect of it, not something you are. So instead of focusing on it as a cultural identity, as a way to organize and form a community almost. Yeah, the quote from that piece that jumped out to me was that the bi movement failed to articulate a coherent platform beyond its initial goals of recognition. And there was a commenter who, uh, you know, raised a, an important point that at least got me thinking about whether sexual orientation must breed culture and like what that relationship is as well. Because I mean, the more it, it, it seems so simple, you know, when, when you're, when you just say, Oh, bisexuality, mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, we know like cut and dry, like what it is. But the more we were reading about this, Caroline, the, the less black and white really it became. But that also goes to the point that, you know, human sexuality is can be a little complicated at times. Yeah, we. I think we. a lot of us want it to be black and white. I think a lot of us want it to be either or. I think the uh, the, the and part or the also part confuses and, and maybe mystifies some of us a little bit. Um, of course, the advocate also points to the now infamous Dear Prudence column over at Slate again called Private Buy, in which a woman writes into Prudy. Uh, she's in a monogamous marriage with a man. She realizes she's bisexual. She comes out to her husband, and she's basically like, what should I do? Should I come out to my family? My husband is telling me no. What do you think I should do? And Prudy caught a lot of flack for telling the woman not to tell the rest of the family, but not only that, for equating bisexuality or the realization that you are bisexual with realizing you like being a dominatrix or realizing you're into plushophilia. And people were like, uh, <laughs> excuse me? Well, she was advocating for her to remain closeted, yeah. stay in the closet. And <laughs> if, sur- surely if uh, like a gay guy wrote in saying like, I'm in this marriage, but I realize I'm to a woman, but I realize that I'm gay. What should I do? Surely she wouldn't say, stay in that closet, lock the door, throw away the key because, you know, you don't really want to make Christmas dinners awkward <laughs> with grandma. They're already so bad. I know. Um, well, yeah, because the whole thing she was saying 
was that it would be one thing, dear reader, if you were going to leave your husband for a woman. But you're not. And so just stay in the closet because there is, again, no reason to upset everyone around you. But in the process, of course, dear, dear Prudence upset everyone around her. Right. But she did circle back and issue a retraction of sorts in the face of, of so much controversy. Yeah. Well, on the celebrity end of the media spectrum, there have been a lot of celebrities lately and specifically in 2014 who either said or appeared to indicate that bisexuality was just a phase, which, of course, is another huge stereotype, myth, thing to be debunked uh, about bisexuality. But uh, Jesse J. and Mel B. both said that it was just a phase. And British diver Tom Daly came out as bi in 2014 and then said a few months later that he was actually gay. Not that there is anything wrong with that. Not that there is anything wrong with saying one thing and being like, well, I'm still in this process of self-discovery. Okay, actually, I'm gay or whatever. Um, but a lot of people pointed to that and just said, see, see. Well, that was the thing, too. I forget which article we were reading, Caroline. It was before he came out and said that he is gay. And uh, commentator Andrew Sullivan, who is gay, when Daly first came out as bi, claiming to be bi, he was like, he called it and was like, no, 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 this guy is clearly gay. He's going to come out in a few months. And this is what, this is the whole gay straight lying thing where bisexual, like saying that you're bi is the way to sort of ease the public, a homophobic public into coming to grips with your sexuality. And people were really upset that he said that. But then Daly comes back around and comes fully out. Well, out of out of a different closet, I should say, because coming out as bi is also coming out of the closet. Well, it's like the hall closet versus the the guest bedroom closet? I don't know. It's a different closet? I say they're all equal closets because considering the kind of biphobia and bisexual discrimination we've been reading about, I'm sure bisexuals listening would say, ho, 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 don't you say that I've got an easier closet to come out of, <laughs> you straight ladies. I do not think that the hall closet is an easier closet. You should see my hall closet. It is full of stuff. Um, but yeah, no, part of what upset people about what Andrew Sullivan said uh, was that not only did he say, oh, no, he's he's gay. Daly is gay. But he also said, because that's my experience, because I did that, too, because I came out as bi first and then came out as gay. Um, and so people were like, hello, not everybody has shocker. Not everybody has the same experience. Well, that's been a big issue with uh, Dan Savage as well of Savage Love and Savage Love cast, whom uh, I know some of our listeners do not enjoy at all. Um, but he similarly first came out as bi and then, um, you know, came out as gay. And he has gotten in hot water with the bisexual community as well because because of that, who has a, a harder closet to come out of? Mm-hmm. Because there is this. I mean, there there really is a lot of. Uh, I don't controversy isn't the right word, but a lot of fighting, sort of a, a lot of tension within the LGB community in terms of um, bisexuals and the discrimination that they feel and that they experience being accepted as valid mm-hmm. by 
gay and lesbian people who say, no, 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 it's, it's, it's a different kind of discrimination because you at least have the sort of straight guise of being with an opposite sex partner if that's what floats your boat at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, I think a lot of bisexual people would come around and argue, but I don't, you know, we don't want to live that way. We don't want to treat if we are in an opposite sex or cross sex relationship. We don't want to treat that as a as a disguise. Exactly. Um, and also under the not helping category is millionaire matchmaker Patty Stanger. Has she ever helped? Has she ever been in the help category? Um, I aside from getting me through boring Saturday <laughs> afternoons. Yeah. Giving me a reason to live when I'm stuck on the elliptical or the treadmill. Yeah. Watching it's for some reason it's always set to Bravo and she's always on. I only watch Bravo at the gym. That's like half the reason I go to the gym, Caroline. I feel like I've confessed this on the podcast before. Well, you know, we do what we have to do, Kristen. It's true. Um, But so, yeah, not only did Patty Stanger say she would never marry a bisexual man, uh, but she also said that bisexual men are really just gay. But also, she said, you don't want a bi woman as the mother of your children. Okay. All right. So, hello. Here is a glaring example of biphobia. Yeah, because, okay, so I, I read that, and then I stopped, and I read it again, and then I read it again. And and what the F does she mean? So, okay. So Probably because, does she assume that bisexual women are hypersexualized? Because the whole, there's that other whole entire stereotype and myth about bisexual people that everybody, whether you're, whether you're gay or whether you're straight, you look at bisexual people and you're like, you're just kind of slutty and greedy, aren't you? <laughs> you just want to have as much sex with as many people as often as possible. Well, yeah, and, and that, that to me is sort of mystifying because just because you are open to loving or being attracted to a man or a woman, does that necessarily mean that you're going to have sex with them at the same time all the time? Yeah, we assume that bisexual like equals sex drive, which yeah. is... Uh, which is definitely faulty logic. Yeah. I mean, so obviously we have a lot of myths to bust uh, throughout this episode. Um, but also under the not helpful category was the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, which last year wrote a blog post saying that bisexuality was binary. And this is a huge argument you hear a lot. And thus erasing of trans and gender queer People. So basically saying bisexual people, your, your whole shtick is, is limiting. To which a bisexual trans person wrote into the task force and basically said, hey jerks, you owe me an apology because I am both trans and bisexual. And so the task force not only deleted the blog post and offered sort of a backhanded apology, basically the whole thing of like, if you got offended, we're sorry. Oh no. Um, but they also changed their name to the National LGBTQ Task Force. Ah, they tossed the B in there. So just sweep, sweep all that out the door. Yeah. Yet again an example of mixing up what we're talking about because transgender is not a sexual orientation. Yeah. It's a gender identity. These are different things, people. And of course, this isn't just going on among the Patty Stangers of the world. This is happening on, you know, scripted television as well. Although, of course, I'm a millionaire matchmaker, clearly scripted, as I can tell you firsthand. Um, but <laughs> there's the so-called straight washing of characters, such as Piper Chapman, on Orange is the New Black. And Caroline, I had not even thought about this 
before. I mean, an example of my own bi blindness. Uh, I hadn't thought about this before we were reading up for this podcast. Yeah, because she's referred to, I think it's by her fiance, right? In the, one of the first episodes, she's referred to as a former lesbian. Yeah, she's always, yeah, it's always a former lesbian. I think bisexual has been mentioned maybe one time. But then Alex refers to Piper as a straight girl. Yeah, just, just flat out, just straight girl playing into the stereotype of bisexual women just playing gay for a day mm-hmm. who are actually straight um, and going a, a bit farther back in television history to Sex in the City. I do clearly remember the episode where Carrie uh, dates a young bisexual guy. And at one point in her, um, you know, her, her monologue, she, she describes him as on a layover on the way to gay town. And the whole thing, like it, it she ends up at this playing this spin the bottle game with him. And she's like, oh, maybe I'm going to kiss a girl because this guy is bisexual and like all of his friends are, are, are bisexual and really loving. And I don't know if I can handle this because I think everybody wants to make out with everybody else. It was a very like <laughs> hypersexualized portrayal of them. And P.S. They they don't they don't end up living <laughs> happily ever after. Yeah. What ha- does he end up being gay or just being bi? She leaves the party. She leaves uh, the spin the bottle party. Oh, Spoiler she, alert. Because oh. she's just like, you know what? This isn't for me. <laughs> Your sexuality isn't for me. Yeah, because, <laughs> well, it was the whole thing. They would like go out and she would see an attractive guy and then look over and he's looking at the attractive guy too. What do you do with that? Yeah. I mean, come on. It was the 90s. It was the 90s. Wasn't it? No, it wasn't the 90s. It was the early 2000s. How old am I? Kristen, well, speaking of the 90s, let's go back to the 90s. The the 1890s. The 1890s. Yeah, you didn't think we'd let you off the hook with a little bit of bisexual history, did you? No. <laughs> Evans, no. It would be impossible. Um. So in the late 19th century... Scientists first start using the term bisexual, but it was used to describe the hypothetical capacity of an organism to develop into either a male or female of its species. So not so much having to do with your sexuality or sexual orientation, but more so having to do with biology. Um, and so this idea began applying to humans, human people, for the first time when it was discovered that human embryos didn't show sexual characteristics until 12 weeks. And Freud, of course, uh, clung on to this idea of bisexuality in a more biological sense, and it informed his thinking about bisexual people, basically that to have the physical characteristics of both sexes naturally meant you'd have the psychic characteristics of both. So bisexuality implies bigenderism. And Freud's definition of bisexuality tied together the concepts of disharmonious or shifting gender identity, as well as dual attraction and the universal sexual ambiguity of the human anatomy, which that's that's a lot to consider the the universal sexual ambiguity of the human anatomy. Yeah, it just makes me think that we're all just lumps of Play-Doh. <laughs> Random little. Some, we, sometimes divots. we get pushed together, and sometimes we get squeezed out of that like Play-Doh pasta maker. Yes, the <laughs> pasta maker. That was my favorite. I know mine too. Um, basically. 
as with a lot of Freud's theories, like everything was cool when you're an immature human, when you're a child. Uh, it's okay to be ambiguous as a kid. It's okay to still be anal retentive, for instance, as a child. But once you became an adult, you better have grown out of that stuff. You better get rid of that anal retention. You, Yeah, you better get rid of that by genderism, by sexuality in the way that he thought of it. And what's so fascinating, too, and I had never heard this, or I don't remember hearing this, but Freud, in addition to many of his contemporaries, tied bisexuality to hysteria. And in his paper, Hysterical Fantasies and Their Relation to Bisexuality, he wrote that hysterical symptoms expressed the combination of masculine and feminine sexual fantasies. So that whole like floating uterus, women are hysterical thing, apparently it all has to do with our innate bisexuality. Yeah, because of that, the struggle between those, I guess, masculine and feminine forces. And if they're imbalanced, then mm-hmm. that's also going to tip your uterus <laughs> off of its balancing point into the, uh, the, the floating abyss that yeah. is your womb. Yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to use the phrase tip tip the scale again. I think it's only going to be to tip the uterus. Tip the ute. Oh, <laughs> it really tipped the ute today. <laughs> but while Freud was starting to play around with this idea of bisexuality in a more uh, psychic sense and link it to hysteria, if we look at bisexuality in the way that we think of it today in terms of orientation, we do have some literary examples from the turn of the century uh, with the Bloomsbury group and lit nerds out there. I'm sure are very familiar with the Bloomsburys, with uh, authors like E.M. Forrester, John Maynard Keynes, and Virginia Woolf, who I believe was a lesbian, not necessarily bisexual, or had lots of lesbian overtones in yeah. her books. Well, but her sister was also in this group, and her sister's husband, and I think there was a lot of like, I don't want to say swinging, but there was a lot of like sharing of partners. Love is is love and love trumps gender. Yeah. And weren't they painting lots of portraits of each other? You were telling me about this, Caroline. Yeah, I loved it. So I was reading. I was trying to find more information about the Bloomsbury group. uh, And I did find one source that had a lot of paintings like that was basically the introduction to the book was just like portrait after portrait after portrait because all of these literary and artistic people who made up this loose collection of humans referred to as the Bloomsbury group they all painted each other it's fascinating uh Caroline I gotta tell you whenever I hear Bloomsbury I think Doonesbury like the <laughs> Doonesbury group it's just people sitting around reading that old that old political cartoon and that is how my brain works. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I really, I do wish that I, I could have found out more about this group. I feel like the resources that I stumbled across weren't super fleshed out, but it, it's not necessarily that these folks in this group were, you know, waving a flag for bisexuality or that they were advocating for LGBT rights or anything like that, but they were sort of on that early forefront of love is love, of 
gender doesn't matter. You know, we love who we love. We're going to support each other. It's, it's sort of like a kind of like a hippie artist commune in London. Yeah. I mean, it seems like any time you have more bohemian artist types, they're usually a bit more open to following your feelings yeah. and loving whom you want to love. Um, so not surprisingly, in 1914, speaking of artists, a film called A Florida Enchantment featured America's first bisexual character. But things aren't all rosy all the time. We are talking about bisexual erasure and dismissal today. Uh, so in 1924, just 10 years after that movie comes out, the Society for Human Rights, which is the first officially recognized gay organization in the U.S., excluded bisexuals. They were basically just, you know, like a lot of people today still feel that it's you're you're gay, straight or lying. And so they were not included in that group. But in the 1940s and 50s, we have Alfred Kinsey come along, who offers some empirical data about how the world is not divided into sheep and goats. And in his examinations of adult sexual behavior, he estimated that nearly 46% of guys had experienced both same and opposite sex sexual activities during their adult lives. And using his Kinsey heterosexual homosexual rating scale, he said 11.6% of white men between 20 and 35 had a rating of three which is about equal straight and gay experience response. So you you hear a three rating a lot when uh, with conversations of bisexuality because that is plotted right in the middle of the Kinsey scale. Yeah, and among women, he found few with exclusively lesbian histories. And when it comes to the Kinsey scale, Kinsey said that just 7% of never married women and 4% of previously married women ages 20 to 35 got a rating of three. Yeah, I mean, keep in mind, too, we are going through an historical timeline. This is taking place in the 1940s and 50s. We will get to more current statistics on bisexuality later on. But the thing to understand is the importance of this scale, because this this really solidifies the idea of sexual orientation being a spectrum rather, again, than, you know, just groups of Sheep and goats. Right, which is which is a Kinsey quote uh, that he was talking about how men are not just two discrete heterosexual and homosexual populations. Yeah, and just bleeding our little brains out. Yeah. It's the loud field of people yelling for sex. Um, but a lot of this research, though, going on during this time and really through today is really focused on... Men. I mean, and, and this is something that is common in medical research of the mid 20th century across the board, whether we're talking about sexuality or talking about drug trials, whatever might have been going on, because thanks to uh, th- this wonky thing that women have called menstruation and periods and fertility, men were considered the ideal research subjects because we ha- they have fewer variables in their bodies. So it's, it's no big surprise that a bulk of this research is looking more at men. And also, too, probably a little driven by the self-interest of the mostly male doctors who were doing the, doing the science at the time. And we'll move more through the mid to late 20th century in, in our bisexuality timeline when we come right back from a quick break.
left off in, let's say, World War II with our bisexual slash bisexual erasure timeline. And now it's time to get into the swinging 70s. Although I think it's actually the swinging 60s usually. But for bisexuality, the 70s was a pretty swinging time because this is when the contemporary bisexual movement begins with many organizations led by men. And this is also, of course, when we see the whole bisexual chic theme emerge in media. Hello, David Bowie. Uh, plenty of rock stars and artists were hooking up with men and women, and the media was reporting all about it, all about these glamorous rock stars and artists. Um, but on the political side, in 1972, uh, the National Bisexual Liberation Group forms, which published the first bisexual-focused newsletter. And in the mid-1970s, we see groups like New York's Bi Forum and Chicago's Bi Ways forming, and San Francisco starts the Bisexual Center. And then in 1978, sort of as a a follow-up to... The Kinsey scale. We have psychiatrist Fritz Klein write the bisexual option, which was one of the first in-depth explorations of bisexuality. And along with that, he releases the Klein grid, which analyzes seven aspects of sexual orientation in people's past, present and ideal lives for 21 possible combinations. And Klein wrote, it is the quality of loving, not the gender of love's objects. That should come under fire. I'm still stuck on that whole 21 possible combinations thing. It's It sounds a little bit like a game of MASH, you know, <laughs> where you can have so many different <laughs> possible combinations for your ideal life. I love that so much. Sexual orientation MASH. I was thinking almost in terms of like it's less a spectrum and more the matrix. Um, but yeah, I love, I love, uh, I love MASH. My sexuality is a convertible with an apartment on the beach. <laughs> I feel like my sexuality also involves the beach somehow. Um, but, you know, so Kristen mentioned that a lot of the studies that are happening are focused on men. A lot of the organizations focused on bisexuality have been led by men. But in the 1980s, we start to see women leading more bisexual advocacy and support groups after experiencing alienation from lesbian communities. We get the Boston and Seattle Bisexual Women's Networks forming, uh, and we see more and more groups popping up in Europe and the groups that exist in the U.S. getting more and more organized. Yeah, and bisexual women at the time were experiencing alienation from uh, lesbian activist groups at the time because of similar reasons why they're, they aren't always embraced today, where it's like, no, if you might still want to have relationships with men, you have attractions to men, you're not really part of our agenda. So it was important for them to create their own spaces as well. And in 1987, sort of showing just how much organization is happening at the time, a bisexual contingent was present for the March on Washington for gay and lesbian rights. Yeah, and then moving into the 1990s, we see the first U.S. and international bisexual conferences. Uh, bi groups start lobbying exclusively gay and lesbian groups to include bisexuals. And in 1998, we see a, a familiar name surface. Fritz Klein founds the American Institute of Bisexuality, which Kristen mentioned earlier. And today it has a nearly $7 million endowment. And writing over at the New York Times Magazine, Denise Lewis writes, in the last few years, 
years, the American Institute of Bisexuality has supported the work of about 40 researchers, including those looking at bisexual behavior and mental health, sexual arousal patterns of bisexual men, bisexual youth, and quote-unquote mostly straight men. And this is important. I mean, this is important to note because as a lot of researchers have said, including uh, Lisa Diamond, who's a big name in studies of women's sexuality and sexual fluidity, It's historically been kind of on the difficult side to secure funding for sexual orientation or sexuality research unless you're somehow tying it in specifically to mental health or things like AIDS and HIV research. Yeah, studying sexual orientation just for its own sake is usually, I guess, kind of poo-pooed in the research community. And I wonder, too, if it if that is another example of some biostigma going on because it's like, oh, well, why why do we really need to pay focus to this? Because I wonder if there is that assumption tied in there of like, this is just a term for people who who might be swingers or might just want to have a lot of sex. Like, who who cares, really? Mm-hmm. But the thing is, even though there have now been decades upon decades of organizing going on, the AIB and, you know, bisexual people in general are still fighting for recognition. And if we look to today, the advocate reports that several studies indicate that, quote, bisexuals make up the largest portion of the LGBT population, but they have some of the worst representation. Yeah, and so what is that proportion? Uh, there's a frequently cited meta-analysis from April 2011 by the Williams Institute out of the University of California that points out that there are approximately 9 million self-identified LGBT Americans, a figure which everybody loves to quote, is roughly equivalent to the population of New Jersey. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and that uh, meta-analysis looked at a whole bunch of different surveys and studies looking at the proportions of not only gay Americans, but bisexual Americans, um, and found that, on average, about 1.8% of American adults identify as bisexual, compared to 1.7% who identify as lesbian or gay. So a lot of people are looking at this and saying... Where is the representation? If if 1.7% of Americans identify as lesbian or gay, and we see a lot of lesbian and gay characters on TV or written about in the media, and the number is about the same for bisexual Americans, where are they? In the closet. Uh, a lot of them are in the closet. According to a 2013 Pew Research survey, only 28% of people who identify as bisexual said that they're open about it. And for, you know, all the reasons that we have touched on earlier of if you are a mother of people shunning you as being an irresponsible parent for that reason, um, of not wanting people to constantly ask you about what you did over the weekend, what kind of crazy things did you get into, wondering about the validity of your same or opposite sex relationships, essentially probably wanting to keep your private life private. Yeah, and I'm sure all of the stereotypes and biphobia that we've already discussed is part of that, that that bisexual people are lying and confused, that they're greedy, selfish, and slutty, or that they're simply afraid to come out as gay, or that it's just a phase. And so it's for these reasons that the San Francisco Human Rights Commission uh, recently called bisexuals an invisible 
majority in need of resources and support. And the need for that support is very real because, as Glad and Brian Dodge, who's a researcher on bisexuality and health at Indiana University Bloomington, have noted, compared to straight and gay folk, bisexual people face higher rates of anxiety, depression, and other mood disorders, as well as substance abuse, victimization by violence, suicidal ideation, and sexual health concerns. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would imagine that if you feel invisible or if you feel like you have to be invisible, um, because you just don't want to face all of these awful negative assumptions and stereotypes about you and your sexuality, it might be hard to ask for help. It, whether you need actual, like, mental health counseling of some kind or, or whether you just are concerned, like, uh, this list pointed out about your sexual health. So I, I imagine that while bisexual erasure on TV or whatever, you could some people poo-poo that as not being that important. It, it is important uh, in terms of representation and seeing yourself on screen, having that lifestyle, that life normalized. And at this point, Caroline, on a side note, I would like to point out that we have used the phrase poo-poo <laughs> twice. <laughs> In this episode, it might it might be a record. Uh, that's well, that's actually the subtitle in my brain of this episode. Poo pooing bisexuality. Yeah. No, no, no. Poo pooing bisexual erasure. I should say we are poo pooing that. Yeah. 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 The end of people poo pooing <laughs> bisexuality. Um, but this is part one of a two part conversation we're going to have about this because we've been talking about the history and more of the real world stats and facts. And next episode, we're going to dive more into pop cultural representations of bisexuality and get into more research on this, on why it seems so hard for our society to wrap its brain around bisexuality and, and what bisexuality means and the kind of language that has evolved around it as well. So tune in for that. But in the meantime, we want to hear from you and your experiences with this. So momstuffathowstuffworks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to the show. Well, Kristen and I have a couple letters here about our single ladies uh, series that we did. Uh, and I have a letter here from Yael. She says, as an American living in Israel, I can certainly verify what Professor Kinneret Lahad said is true. I've been to 31 weddings in my four and a half years in this country. Single by choice is not a welcome option in Jerusalem, especially not in religious circles. Even lenient religious circles are entrenched in the idea of marriage. Tel Aviv may be slightly different as there are fewer religious people there, but I believe the ideal of marriage is strong in Israel no matter what, as even secular Jews are often quite traditional. I remember being 18 and thinking that I would be married at 22, and as I passed that age, I just always assumed it was another year or so. I'm almost 28 now, and in the secular American world, I would be viewed as young, with plenty of time and no need to worry. But Jerusalem is a little more homogenous than, say, New York City. As a moderately religious Jew in Jerusalem, I see all my friends my age and older panicking a little, as they all assumed, like I did, that we'd be married now. 
None of us are single by choice, and it definitely has to do with what Dr. Lahad said about our upbringing, ingraining us with the expectation of marriage and the belief that being married is a sign of status and stability. We have a great social circle that combines young marrieds and singles, but I see what happens when people stay single well into their 30s or 40s. They come around to singles events, and a lot of people look at them like they're creepy or sad or weird. It's so messed up, and I feel like that's what is scaring my friends and myself. We don't want to end up being pitied and invited to things as an act of charity or being set up with much older men or people that we would have to be settling for. It's frustrating that single by choice isn't really an option here because the stigma is so strong and the communal life is such that if you choose that life, you are actively choosing to be ostracized in a way. The older you get here, if you stay single, no matter what, people have it in the back of their minds that you are desperate. There's no escaping it. I agree with Dr. Lahad that the conversation needs to be continued to make life better for singles so that it can be seen as another way to live, not a different way to live. Well, thank you so much for your letter. Well, I've got a letter here from Danny who writes, I recently discovered your podcast and absolutely fell in love with it. I even got my 14-year-old brother to listen to it when he wants to learn stuff and encourage him to go there for information on women and sexuality instead of scouring Tumblr. Oh, I love that. Although, by the way, just also send him to stuff I'm never told you dot Tumblr. He can stay on Tumblr. (laughs) Um, So, Danny writes, I wanted to write you about your recent episode on the concept of single by choice. I'm a 19-year-old first-generation immigrant Hispanic woman who noticed some similarities among my peers of the same bracket. I always joke with other young Hispanic immigrant women that after the quinceanera comes the wedding and sadly have discovered that to be true. At 16, my very Catholic Hispanic mother sat me down and talked to me about the importance of finding me a man soon and settling down, giving her lots of grandbabies. When I told her I wanted to go to college and law school, then I would think about maybe perhaps, and also I kind of like women, she was livid. Now I'm 19, have my paralegal certificate, made the leap career-wise from McDonald's to a legal assistant at a law firm and plan to be a judge. Hey, good for you. Of course, none of this is valid because I don't have a man by my side and my parents have made that very clear. Both try desperately to play matchmaker and pair me with men, sometimes way older than me, with the hopes that I will come to my senses and stop looking at girls all dreamy and have a kid por el amor de Dios. Talking to other college-age Hispanic and immigrant women, we are all in a very similar boat. Most of us have fallen to the dreamer category and legal limbo girls just wanting an education or push to get married ASAP. Some of us are even told, marry first, he can pay for your expensive degree. Some of us just kind of shake it off and try to tell them that we're not living at the ranch with grandma who got married and got right to having kids at 15, and some give in, marry young, and actually lead really successful lives. For some of us, single by choice is not an option. Some Hispanic women who are first-generation immigrants and still single at 25 are ostracized by their own family and praised by their feminist friends. It puts us between the wall of praise and society at the cost of family rejection and even banishment of being labeled as gringa in the sense that we're leaving behind all trace of our culture and told every accomplishment we do is invalid without a man. I have cousins who are already considered old maids at 23 or younger. 
I would love to hear from other first-generation immigrants in other cultures on the subject. I know for some, arranged marriage, even if one's parents are in totally different parts of the world, is a very real thing. Shout out to all immigrant women struggling to tell their parents that's just not how it works here, Mom. Once again, I adore your podcast and encourage everyone to listen to it whenever they can. Sex education saves lives, and you two ladies are saving lives every day. So thanks so much, Danny. And listen, keep on going for that judgeship. You can do it. And if you have a letter to send to us, momstuffathowstuffworks.com is our address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one, with our sources, so you can learn more about bisexuality and biphobia, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 